Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest today is Harry Shookman, one of our regular contributors, who's talking to us about an article he wrote for us recently entitled Oligarch, how the art world helped launder the reputations of the kleptocratic classes and created a modern monster in the process. Enjoy! Harry Shookman, welcome back. You're pretty much a co-host on this now. You're a regular. It's a pleasure to be back. It's a hat trick, I think. This is our third one. It's a hat trick. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully many more. But this one is all about oligarch. I wonder if anyone's going to get that pun. It's meant to be the combination of oligarch and art, which is very clever. No one else has used it yet, which makes me suspicious that it's either very good or very, very bad. But we'll find out soon. Um... But it's all about how the kind of plutocratic classes use art as a tool and a plaything and how the art world has kind of welcomed them in often with open arms. Can you tell us how this status quo has sort of come about that some of the most colourful, at the very least, businessmen in the world come to own some of its most beautiful and beloved pieces of art? Yeah, so crime goes where the money is and the regulation isn't. Um, If you recall that scene in the Daniel Craig movie Layer Cake, uh, back in the 60s, all the crooks realised they're in the wrong game and instead of robbing banks, they should be dealing drugs. A similar thing happened with art. Villains looked at the art world and saw that it had very little regulation. It's extremely opaque. It's very easy to move and hide property. And it comes with the added bonus of making you seem like a noble patron of the creative world instead of a sanctioned criminal who knows how to fit a pair of concrete boots. So it's a, it's a very attractive prospect. If, uh, if you need a reputation to be laundered and you're looking to, to off, offload a bit of uh, dirty money. Why are we talking about this now? Beyond the obvious, have there been a few kind of notable cases that have brought it to public attention a bit more? Yeah, I, I wonder if after the Sackler scandal, the American family that... I was involved in creating the opiate crisis with OxyContin. Um, has something to do with this. Uh, it's a name that came up a lot in reporting this article. And they were patrons of a number of famous international galleries whose names are now starting to come off various wings and libraries um, around the world. And I wonder if that's given slightly less tolerance or maybe that's caused the art world to have a bit of a reckoning about where its money comes from. After the invasion of uh, Ukraine, the art world was forced to look at its connections to dark Russian money and ask itself how it ever got so close to, to oligarchs. Because for years, the most celebrated names in art have been very happy to cozy up to Russian money. Jeff Koons, Larry Gagosian, Sadie Coles, the dealers, and all the biggest galleries and museums in the world have really gratefully received uh, dark Russian money, the Tate, the MoMA, the Guggenheim. It's probably worth it, uh, at some point saying that you know not every Russian art patron is a crook, but alarm bells should definitely be ringing when an oligarch appears on the scene. You know, you don't get to be an oligarch in charge of your country's entire aluminium industry, for instance, without being uncomfortably close to the to the Russian leader. And we touched on this a little bit before, but why is art in particular such an attractive? place to, to kind of store money because there must be other instruments this in this day and age which are com, you know offshore shell companies and things like that why art in particular art is a as a sunny place for shady people as the saying almost goes gallery and auction house sales last year amounted to 65 billion dollars 
and everyone, criminals included, wants a slice of that. There are checks and balances that exist in other industries that are totally absent in art. So in property, for instance, another favourite of the oligarchs. It's much easier to accurately gauge a house's value, see what it's been sold for in every transaction since the house was built. In art, there's no comprehensive database keeping track of sales past and present. And the business of art valuation is like reading tea leaves. Yeah. You might remember that story of Banksy going into Central Park in New York, setting up an anonymous store and offering his priceless creations for $60 a pop. And no one, barring one guy who, who, who bought a couple of, um, couple of sketches, you know, paid any interest. And so the, the art world offers this wow. shield from scrutiny that's really attractive if you're trying to keep a low profile. Buyers can remain anonymous, hide their tracks using yeah. middlemen and shell companies. It might be the case that an owner has an agent who has a dealer, who has a customer. Money can change hands in at least six separate transactions over the course of a week for one particular painting. The most expensive work of art ever sold at auction was Salvatore Mundi, which may or may not have been painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It was purchased for $450 million, totally anonymously. And to this day, nobody knows where this incredible work of art even is. It might be on Mohammed bin Salman's private yacht or in storage in Switzerland. Nobody knows for sure. It's crazy. And I guess the thing about art is, as you say in your piece, that you can roll it up and put it in a suitcase, which you definitely can't do with, you know, gold bars or a hundred million pounds in um, in notes because you'll definitely get found out. So what about the um, the kind of the hot spots around the world? Is London a particular egregious example of this kind of um, cozying up to, to dodgy art money? Absolutely. I mean, there's the, the, the Tate Foundation, uh, the Royal Academy have all taken Russian money. But New York was one that cropped up a lot in my uh, reporting. I mean, the New Museum, the Lincoln Center, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Carnegie Hall all took dodgy Russian money. A special mention has to go to the Guggenheim Museum, which welcomed Vladimir Potanin, um, who's known as the Nickel King, uh, with open arms. He was the architect of this particularly shady scheme in the 1990s called Loans for Shares, which allowed the cash-strapped Russian state to sell off its most lucrative assets far below market value. Historians now consider this a really pivotal moment in the foundation of the oligarchy. It's been called a, an act of colossal criminality that has defined the Russian economy. And Potanin was the, was the grand uh, vision behind all of this. Um, in the early noughties, he was looking for a way to launder his reputation and came to the Guggenheim Museum, became a benefactor and then a trustee. Right up until 2019, long after the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of the Donbass region, a year after Potanin was named on a... US Treasury list of oligarchs who were really close to Putin. Uh, Potanin was able to fund this fellowship at the Guggenheim and Richard Armstrong, the gallery's director, put out the most fawning, obsequious statement praising Potanin for his generous support and foresight, his prescience in funding such an important fellowship. And after the invasion of the Ukraine, uh, links like this, you know, have become you know, much more scrutinised and Potanin you know, ended up being removed as a trustee and now bootlicking like uh, like Armstrong at the Guggenheim now looks pretty pretty grim. Has there been any kind of public retraction? Have people just quietly scrubbed the names off 
various windows and walls or or has it been done with some fanfare? There have been some statements that will mention that an oligarch has been taken off the list of trustees or the board and, and perhaps a statement in solidarity with Ukraine, although many of the past links are just sort of quietly disappearing from, from websites. You know, it's, yeah. it's harder and harder to find traces in this of their past links. So what are some of the kind of more surprising little morsels or details that you discovered when you were researching the piece? One of the things that struck out to me was this idea of free ports, um, particularly in, in Switzerland. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this concept? Free ports are, are just an incredible creation. Um, they have very little or no taxes at all. So if you are a billionaire who's purchased a work of Renaissance art, and you're deciding which of your international mega mansions you want to hang it up in. The Freeport is a useful place to keep your painting while you're doing your renovations. Um, the most interesting of these Freeports is in Geneva, and it's half the size of the absolutely gargantuan British Museum, and is estimated to have $100 billion worth of art and antiquities, among them Da Vinci's, Renoir's, Warhol's, Picasso's, there are about a thousand of those stuck in there. It's been called the greatest art collection no one can see. And it's a thoroughly depressing thought that all these amazing creations by history's best artists are stuck in a windowless room for tax purposes, never to be seen again, nestled in between uh, boxes of looted Egyptian artifacts and Nazi gold ingots. Switzerland, by the way, is, a, is, is an interesting case because it saw a, a rush of Russian purchases just before the invasion. Art trade publications noted this spike of interest in Swiss galleries in January and February when invasion was starting to look more and more likely, noting that Switzerland accepts cash payments of up to £80,000, unlike in the rest of the EU where you can't pay anything in excess of around £1,000 in cash. So wow. you were mentioning easy portability being, uh, being an important factor. I mean, look at, look at Switzerland as an example. So who, who, who did you speak to for this story? I can imagine a lot of the kind of establishment players were, were difficult to get hold of or didn't, didn't want to chat to you about this. Who are your sources? Yeah, you can, you can imagine why. I mean, I had this, uh, had this dream that they would have, of, of being able to get inside the opening of Garage in Moscow in 2015, which I thought was the, the high watermark of, the, of Oligart. It was this super lavish opening in this giant gallery in Moscow where all the glitziest people turned up to celebrate Roman Abramovich and his then-wife Dasha Zhukova's new uh, museum. It was Carly Klaas, George Lucas, Stella McCartney, Wendy Deng, and this being 2015 also, Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen. Nice. Um, the museum laid on 86 kilos of caviar, 450 litres of champagne to toast their big opening. Um, it's you know, the absolute pinnacle of oligarchy and involvement in the art world. I really wanted to speak to people who'd gone to that event for the inside story, but um, in the end it wasn't possible. But I did get some fascinating insight from art lawyers who laid out uh, why the industry is so crooked. And um, they, uh, they had some very interesting things to say. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how the kind of the business actually works. What is the, the ecosystem? What are the different cogs in the machine that, that allow this, this kind of odd practice to take place? One of the examples that uh, an art lawyer walked me through was of um, Arkady Rotenberg, childhood friend mm. and judo partner of Putin. 
who, after being sanctioned by the US, after the uh, Crimean annexation, he continued trading in the art market. He, along with his brother, the Rotenbergs were able to buy $18 million worth of art through proxies, one of their sons, an art dealer who set up uh, shell companies in Belize to spirit expensive artworks out of auction houses, many of whom have this very laissez-faire attitude to due diligence. And uh, yeah, with the amount of money at stake in this industry, the Rotenbergs must be the tip of the iceberg. But they are a really good example of how lax the art market is. Even when you're under sanction, you can still trade a <laughs> huge figure's worth of art. It's wild. So, I mean, how's that kind of affected your, your view on the art market in general? What does it make you think about um, this industry, which is often seen as a kind of very upright, austere, um, serious, old-fashioned place with kind of big names like Sotheby's and Christie's and big museums like the Guggenheim? It, has it changed your view of it in some way? I think after seeing, you know, the, the headline uh, pieces of art coming out of Art Basel, I was already pretty cynical, but... My, uh, my faith in the art world has plummeted to a rock bottom after working on this article. I mean, it's hard to imagine an industry that is better suited to corruption and exploitation. And it wouldn't be so bad, you're right, if gallery owners weren't claiming this moral high ground, acting as patrons of the noblest form of human achievement. But they're happily taking some really filthy money. I mean, uh, we talked about the Sacklers and how they used to fund a lot of um, galleries and museums how their name is starting to come off um, their wings they funded now that they're unfashionable. I mean, the same is happening with Russian names, some of them, uh, although they're hardly the only unsavoury characters in the art world. And we, we might be seeing Russian influence diminish, but, you know, there are still Saudi and Gulf patronage of, of art that, uh, you know, deserves a second look. You know, Grayson Perry once told an interviewer that he wondered sometimes if the whole art market isn't a fantastic, unregulated money laundering system. And uh, I've got to agree with him. Mm. Although with the likes of Grayson Perry, you know, he said in the same interview that he's very happy to cash in on that fantastic scheme himself, getting in while the getting's good. That gives you an example of just how entrenched dirty money is in the art world. It's, it seems like it's going to be very hard to ever totally clean up um, what is a very shady industry. Well, it sounds like there's plenty more articles in this to come. We might have to do a special on free ports, actually, and send you out into a warehouse, mic'd up or something. I don't know. They'll probably, <laughs> probably never see you again. Sounds like a plan. Harry, thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, and I hope this this hasn't endangered your life in any way. I mean, that's insane. Always a pleasure. <laughs> or any of our lives. And you find me washed up on the <laughs> with a pair of concrete boots outside the... Guggenheim Museum, you'll know that it was this that did it. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.